Our scripture reading is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, the first six verses. This is God's word. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. And Father, you have told us, your word tells us that the heavens declare your glory. The sky proclaims your handiwork. But it is your word that is perfect, that revives the soul. It is your word that is right, rejoicing the heart and enlightens our eyes. Would you, by your spirit, do that work in us today? Would you revive our souls? Would you rejoice our heart and enlighten our eyes that we may take hold of the truth and the beauty and the grandeur and the glory of the gospel? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are in that series. We've been in Ephesians and still are. And we're reading in chapter 4, and when we get to chapter 4, you should note that there's something different happening when we get to chapter 4. If you have a Bible and are looking, you would see that right before chapter 4 is a doxology. Paul often ends a section of his writings in a letter with a doxology, and he did just that in Ephesians 3. And if you have been with us, Or if you would later on today read through Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you know why Paul ends chapter 3 with a doxology. It is a grand story that he has told. It's the story of our redemption. Let me remind you of some of what he has said. God chose us for himself before the world was created. He chose us to be his children, and that means heir of all that our Father owns. He sent Christ to atone for all our trespasses, sealed us with his Holy Spirit, and promises to spend an eternity unfolding the immeasurable riches of his grace. That's why chapter 3 ends with a doxology. (laughs) And when we get to chapter 4, what we're going to see is how that glory of God is to glory to God is to be rendered to him in the way we live our lives. That's what happens when you get to chapter 4 and the rest of the book. He's unfolding the practical ways that the glory of God is to be revealed in our lives. So this is supposed to be a practical sermon (laughs) to show us what does it look like to begin to reflect and to live in light of the grandeur in the glory of the gospel. And, And in other words... It's about what he's going to do in these three chapters is tell us how to be a Christian. How do we live this? How does this work? What does it look like? And in this, these short verses today, these six verses, 
we're going to see Paul answer four questions. What it is that we're to pursue. Where that pursuit starts. How we do it and why it's important. That's, that's the path for us today. What are we to pursue? Where does that start? How do we do it and why is it important? So let's look. It's very clear. <clears throat> um, I've said this is in light of the doxology. Chapter 4 begins with the word therefore. So it's rooted in what he's just said. And therefore I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, entreat you. In fact, the better word is beg you. I'm begging you, Paul says, to pursue a life that matches your calling. That's what we're to pursue. We're to pursue a life that matches our calling. It's the word he uses. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. But let me make sure you don't go down the wrong road right here. Because when Paul says, live a life worthy, he is not saying, live a life that makes you worthy of God's love. That you and I somehow have to now live a certain way in order to retain God's love or to make it yours. No, there's another word picture that Paul has in mind. When he uses the word worthy, he's not talking about the worth, our worth, He's talking about the worth of our calling. And I just account, recounted parts of that to you. To live a life that matches that. And here's where I get that. The word that he uses is a Greek word. It's translated worthy here. In other places, it, it is translated in keeping with. To live a life, Paul says, in keeping with your calling. So now that's very different than earning or being found worthwhile. But it's to live a life in keeping with. Here's the picture. Think of that, uh, that playground seesaw. Remember that? Some of you were old enough to... Do they still have those? Yeah, I, think, I thought so. Um, the playground seesaw that um, tends to go up or down depending on the weight of who's on the other end. And if it's 30 pounds on one end and 300 on the other, it's a risky business. But you can sometimes find, I remember trying to find that point where if I, somebody not quite my weight, but if one of us would adjust, we could, we could get this equilibrium so that, and that was the goal. That was, that was actually the goal other than the up and down. The up and down's fun. But, but the goal that I set before myself was, how can we balance things in such a way that we're suspended? That's what Paul is after. He wants us to live a life that matches the grandeur and glory of our calling. Now, stick with me, because that's virtually impossible but it is the goal. That's what Paul sets out. Tony, you need to leave. Cornerstone Prez, you need to live lives that are in keeping with your calling. That your life reflects the grandeur and the glory. One way of thinking about it is that your faith is authentic. That it matches. You know, our culture will tell us <clears throat> 
that authentic, to be authentic in this culture has come to mean a genuine person is the person who acts out accordingly in accord with their inward feelings. That's what our culture does with that. And you recognize that. Be true to yourself, we hear, we're saying. Uh, we might better say, no, don't be true to yourself. There's other things going on. But that's where our culture goes. And uh, it's understandable that, that they want to find, the culture wants to find something that fits who you are, who you conceive yourself to be. But rather than in accord with our inward feelings, which we could call expressive individualism, that's a value in our culture, right? Expressive individualism. You see it, we see it all the time. Christianity calls us to act outwardly in accord with something else. That we are to act, accord, act outwardly in accord with our calling. The calling with which you've been called is how Paul puts it. So rather than expressive individualism, Paul calls us to an expressive faith. That our lives express something that they express the grandeur and the glory of our calling. That doesn't mean that we don't sin. It means we're quick to repent, as an example. But we live in such a way that matches or is in, that our life is in, in light of the great calling that, to which we've been called. The basic idea, <clears throat> this is, these are helpful words from Sinclair Ferguson, I found. The basic idea is, a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ expresses in the form of a lifestyle what the gospel teaches in the form of a message. Hear that again. A life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ expresses in the form of a lifestyle what the gospel teaches in the form of a message. For three chapters, we've had the message for the next three, we get a glimpse of the lifestyle that matches. Such a life takes on a character that reflects the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ is to become more like Jesus. It's that simple. That's what is in store for us in these next three chapters. That's the life that we're to pursue. We're to pursue a life that matches our calling. Where does that start? Well, look at verse 3. Jump down to verse 3 where we read that we are, to, we are to live a life with zeal to maintain the unity of the Spirit. He says eager. I'm saying zeal, zealous. That we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Uh, what is the unity of the Spirit? Well, part of the answer we're going to find in chapter 4. We're not there yet, but we'll be there uh, soon, later in this chapter, where Paul says that Christ has given to the church some as apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to unity of the faith. We're to maintain the unity of the Spirit. We're to attain the unity of faith. Which is it? Maintain, attain. It's both. And they're both provided for us. They're both set before us. There is a unity of the, that the Spirit creates that we are to maintain. And the attainment of that is how it's expressed. 
It's there. We don't create it. The Spirit of God creates the unity. There is one church in Franklin. Did you know that? Of all the churches that meet around the gospel by different denominations, there is one church. There's a unity that Paul is addressing here and reminding us of, but even in our midst, we are one. (laughs) We're not interest groups. We're not demographic groups. We are one, Paul says. There's a unity, and that unity is something that we are to be eager to maintain. That means guarding against the temp- attempts to disrupt it. Let me give you some ideas of what that can look like. Gossip. Talking about other people without talking to them. And before you dismiss that, think about the way our conversations tend to run. How often are we talking about other people? Their decisions, their values, their choices, their children. (laughs) How often are we talking about other people? It's something to watch for, something to be attuned to, because the fact is, I think this is fair to say, that we are gossiping before we realize it. In other words, if it was called gossip, we would know not to go there. (laughs) But we go there and then never figure out that that's what it is. Whether that's gossip or maybe it's unfounded criticism, you know part of the story and have become critical about this or that, that person, that church, that denomination. Unfounded criticism, or maybe it's harboring grudges, and I know this one's true. We never set out to harbor grudges. They just linger. (laughs) Those are some ways that that disrupt the unity of the spirit that we are to maintain. When I say maintain, Paul uses a word that's translated eager, be eager, or strive earnestly, be diligent, spare no effort. It's the word the trainer of gladiators used when he sent men to fight to the death. He said, spare no effort to come out alive. You don't go into that half-hearted. And Paul says about the unity of the Spirit, we are to not be half-hearted. We're not to wait on other people to do so, but we're to be eager and zealous to promote, it's one of your membership vows, right? To promote the purity and the peace of the church. You see, we are a group of imperfect people. That's who you're sitting next to. That's who you are. We are a group of imperfect people who can preserve a common care for one another. And where that is not happening, Paul says it needs to happen. So we need to do an inventory. That's an invitation for you to consider your own life, your own relationships, your own words. And to consider what can I do to to promote the purity and the peace of the church or to eagerly strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit and not let gossip 
criticism and grudges become dissension and a lack of love. That's where we start. That's where Paul starts, and maybe that's where we want to start. I'm not sure I would have thought to start with the unity of the Spirit when you're thinking about balancing this, but remember what Paul has done. For three chapters, he's not only talked about the grandeur of our redemption, he's talking about the mystery of the gospel bringing together people that don't go together, (laughs) Jews and Gentiles. And so when we get to chapter 4, we probably shouldn't be surprised. He's talking about a unity. We need to express the unity. We need to live out the unity that is ours. And it needs to show up in, in the way we relate to people that are different from us. Uh, we've said in more than one occasion that the church is the place where you, you find something in common with people that you wouldn't have found in common before. The, 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 you're, you're united to Christ. Your, your, your faith in Christ is what unites us. And so we, are, we find racial and ethnic and other, other differences not so different in Christ. At least that's what we're to aspire to. That's where it starts with the zeal to maintain the unity of spirit. So how do we do that? What does that look like? And we unpack it as Paul does in verse 2. He gives us some words. He gives us four virtues, or maybe it's five. I'll let you decide. He picks out some words and he says, To maintain the unity of spirit, these are the virtues that should mark your life to live in keeping with your calling. The first word he gives us in verse 2 is lowliness, or maybe your translation is humility. A lowliness or humility. That actually was despised in the ancient world. Humility was not a virtue. It was something to shun. It was something to avoid But to be proud and high instead of lowly. But Jesus turns that upside down and models for us what humility is. That humility, Paul says, is an essential component of unity. And flip that around and one of the things to guard against and to watch for that would dissolve unity or undermine unity would be what? It'd be pride. Pride of my opinion, pride of my way of thinking, my way of doing things, proud. Pride gets in the way of the kind of humility that creates and not creates, but maintains that unity that is the spirits. Pride lurks behind all discord. And when you watch discord occur, you will find pride. You know, the thing about pride is it's so easy to recognize in others. <laughs> and for us, it goes by so many different names. But when there is discord lurking underneath is pride. Paul says, your life, church, is to be marked by lowliness or humility, gentleness, or meekness. That mildness, it's a mildness or gentleness of character. That should mark your life and my life, a gentleness. And and that word that Paul uses there is not for weakness. That's how we consider it in this culture, that mildness or gentleness is a form of weakness. 
Not according to Scripture. The word that he uses is a word for strength under control. That should mark my life and yours. A mildness and gentleness of character that is strength under control. The next two words go together as well, just like humility and meekness. Those, those seem to belong together. So do these two, patience and forbearance. Here's what I mean by that. Patience is sometimes rightly translated long-suffering. And what Paul has in mind here when he talks about the unity of the Spirit, he means that we are to be long-suffering toward aggravating people. And those aggravating people exist. And the scripture kind of acknowledges that. That there are people that are just, that are aggravating by what they do or the way they do it because it's not the way we would do it or the way we want. And some names and faces have just come to mind. (laughs) But Paul is saying you lean into that, that we are to be long-suffering. The next word is forbearing. We are to endure. (laughs) We are to endure people that are different from us, who love Christ, who just do things differently. We're to endure and to forbear, to stick with. Um, It means bearing with one another's weaknesses, not ceasing to love one's neighbors or friends or family because of faults in them that, that perhaps offend or displease us. And when we recognize that it's, I'm just displeased or offended, I don't have a ground for that. When I consider the call to which I've been called, the love of Christ, and that's the bottom line for this, that how we get this in our lives is, <clears throat> Paul, Paul says, you're to forbear one another in love. That should echo with chapter 3 where Paul says that you, church, are rooted and grounded in love. That's how that works. Let me, you know, high school and college graduates this time of year are being told all sorts of things like you can be everything you want to be. You can do anything you want to do. My question is, how does that work out? I had other plans. (laughs) You can be everything you want to do. Just set your mind to it. It's not as simple as gritting your teeth and producing something. When you grit your teeth to try to change your character, you know what happens? You grind down your teeth. And that's about the only change. You need a mouth guard. To grit your teeth, to get there, there's something else. Paul says we're to be rooted and grounded in love. Forbearance. How do you get there? Our denomination turns 50 this year. The PCA is 50, born in 1973. At a time, for some of you that might remember this, or others have read about it, at a time when the charismatic movement was sweeping across mainline Protestant churches. And this new denomination, born at a church, a gathering of church leaders in Birmingham, Alabama, that we now call the PCA, would face this potentially divisive issue. 
So like good Presbyterians, they formed a study committee. And a year later, that study committee unanimously proposed a pastoral letter on the issue to the second General Assembly in 1974, which the assembly adopted and circulated to the churches in the PCA. And you can find this on the PCA website today. It's a pastoral letter concerning the Holy, Holy Spirit and gifts. And it closed with these words. It was recommending continued study of the issue and urging a spirit of forbearance among those holding different views regarding the spiritual gifts as they are experienced in 1974. And this comes from an article that I read uh, this week, which is why it landed in the sermon with these words. Apparently, this last exhortation to forbear with one another who hold different views has been taken to heart. For the issue of charismatic gifts has not been a major source of controversy since the Second General Assembly approved this letter and distributed the church in 1974. For 49 years, a spirit of forbearance has resulted in a church that has chosen to maintain the unity of the spirit. One other thing, I would suggest that the reason that happened was not because it was a persuasive letter, because it landed in the hearts of men and women who were rooted and grounded in love. Many of you know that uh, this week, our, our pastor from a distance, Tim Keller, has been called home to glory. This is a prayer Tim sought to pray every day. Lord, give me a sense of love from you so I'm not scared or driven. A welling up of love for you so I'm not proud or selfish. A resulting love for others so I'm not cold and distracted. Let your spirit illumine my mind and enlarge my heart for that. Another way of saying that is, would you root me and ground me in love? We have a new identity in Christ and we have a new integrity that we're called to. Rooted and grounded in love. Why is that important? That's what Paul does in the last three verses. Why is this important? It's because the unity of the Spirit that we are to pursue to live a life worthy of the calling to which we have been called reflects the unity of our God. It reflects the unity of our God. These, these last three verses, verses four through six, uh, have been called a sevenfold confession. And as you read it, you'll know why. It's called a sevenfold confession. It, their thoughts are that this might have been a fragment from an early hymn, but Paul inserts it here to do what he wants us to do. That is to direct our hearts 
into the grandeur and glory of the triune God. When you read through that sevenfold confession, you will see the Trinity. There is one body, one spirit, one hope. That's verse 4. That's the work of the Spirit who we, who we heard a couple of weeks ago has made us one body, called us to one hope. That is the Spirit's work. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is that our, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which you've been called. That's the Spirit's work in our midst. One body, one spirit, one hope, verse 4. Then verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Lord is master, the one to whom we say, command me. One faith, that is a common set of core beliefs around who he is and what he has done. And one baptism, that's the outward sign of faith, the initiatory right and, and union with Christ that it represents. That's what baptism represents, union with Christ. One spirit one Lord, and verse 6, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. Do you hear what Paul is doing there? He's unfolding something of the mystery of the Trinity when it comes to our faith and the calling to which you've been called. So the Father creates one family. The Lord Jesus Christ creates one faith, one hope, one baptism. And the Spirit creates one body. The triune God, the foundation of our unity is, the is in the very nature of the Godhead. That's why it's important. That's why Paul starts there. Because this is not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. And we're called to live a life in keeping with his calling. And the way that occurs is when we see the beauty and the grandeur of it all once again. Paul's done it for three chapters, and now he does it for three verses. When pointing to the triune God, just, just recall these words. We heard about Jesus' own lowliness, Philippians 2. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a Christ cross. Jesus' lowliness is not only a model for ours, it is the source of ours. Where we tap into to who he is and what he has done for us. Jesus' lowliness, but also Jesus' meekness. In Isaiah 53, the prophet is describing, you'll recognize him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is set before a shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. A strength under control. Or Paul's words to the church in Rome. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. These very descriptors, these very virtues, gentleness, humility, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, it's a picture of the Lord Jesus. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning, including this one. Hear his voice and come to him to pursue a life that is in keeping with the calling to which you've been called. And he meets you right there. He meets you in that pursuit. He shows you himself. He shows you his scars. He shows you the forgiveness that is yours as we set out to attain the unity that we are to maintain because it is created for us and given to us. And it's with his help and by his mercy that we step into chapter four and the practical ways that we render glory to God because he rendered himself to us first. It's in Christ's name that we live. Let's pray. Oh, Father, it is in you, triune God, the one who made us for yourself, who meets us here, the king and the, the great advocate that is ours. Would you stir in us the kind of zeal that Paul writes about? For some of us, that zeal and that eagerness is, is simply an idea. Or maybe it's an idea for others. But you tell us in your word that this is for us. That we are to be zealous and to eagerly, with every effort, to live a life that is in keeping with our calling. And we know that our calling is sure, it's steadfast, it's not up for grabs, it's determined. That there's a throne occupied in heaven with one who knows us, who loves us, who gave his life for us. It's in Christ's holy name that we pray. Amen.